The hour to which the podcast adjourned having arrived, the podcast is now in order. Let's gavel in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service. Here's Sam Doran. Send in the pundits. We're just days away from Election Day, and it's time to indulge ourselves with some predictions, prognostications, and general punditry from a veteran Massachusetts political commentator. Our menu on this week's Statehouse Takeout is bountiful. Speculation around how a potential Biden administration could shape the political landscape here at home. The legislative outlook on Beacon Hill this fall and winter. And it's never too early to start thinking about 2022. The next gubernatorial race is just around the corner. Joining us this week is John Keller, veteran commentator with WBZ Boston, who has recently started providing his Keller at Large audio commentaries through our morning newsletter, Masterlist. John, thanks so much for joining us this week. Thanks for having me, Sam. Everybody loves punditry, right? <laughs> we all do from time to time. And, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and John, um, the, the first thing that occurs to me as we think about this year is that COVID-19 affects everything, and with the election drawing close, it's affecting how a lot of people uh, are exercising their right to vote. It's affecting uh, how folks will be watching the election unfold at home, and it's really affecting uh, the reporters and the pundits and how we spend election nights. I'm curious right off the bat, um, what, what do you normally do uh, on election night as you follow the proceedings? And, and what are you going to be doing this year? Well, uh, I'm, I will be doing what I normally do. I'll be down at WBZ uh, filling time till numbers start to come in. Uh, by, we're, we're, I'm going to be joined uh, at 8 o'clock. We'll, we'll be starting off on CBSN Boston which is our online news service. And I'll be joined for an hour by former Congressman Joe Kennedy, talking a little bit about um, the election, what the future might look like for Congress, uh, depending on the outcome. And then uh, for a little partisan balance, I'll be spending an hour talking with Jeff Deal, who was the uh, Republican nominee for US Senate a couple of years ago, uh, now out of public office. Then, hopefully, the numbers and the speeches uh, will start to come in and we'll see what we have. Uh, I'm one of the unfortunate Americans who is not allowed to drink on election night because I am working. And uh, believe me, there have been many an election night, Sam, when I've regretted that profoundly. <laughs> well, how, how much of the results do you think we'll actually know on election night? And uh, I've been kind of thinking that even if we don't know the outcome of the presidential election, uh, we might still be seeing speeches from the candidates. Oh, yeah, I think we probably will. I think I, I just got a hunch that uh, we're going to know that uh, that all these projections of the outcome being in doubt for days, maybe weeks afterward, are not going to happen. I mean, look, North Carolina, I believe the polls close at 7 or 7.30. And that's one of a number of states where uh, early voting and absentee ballots are counted in advance, but the result is withheld 
until the polls close. So there could be a quick decision there. And if it's a knockout for Joe Biden, that will really be a huge, huge red flag that uh, the Trump era may be coming to an end. Florida also, uh, for all of its reputation as a cesspool of screwed up uh, uh, election monitoring and, and vote counting, they do have a lot of experience counting absentee ballots there. They've had that for many years. Uh, so it's possible that Florida might also come in uh, during the evening on Tuesday. And again, depending on how that goes, that could be a sign of a cliffhanger election or an early knockout. So, you know, I'm guessing that we will know, but um, please, no wagering on that guess. <laughs> uh should Joseph Biden prevail and take the White House, uh, there's been a lot of speculation in the local press about what that would mean for office holders here in the Bay State uh, and names that come up. Of course, the top of that list, Senator Elizabeth Warren, but Charlie Baker, Marty Walsh and some other uh, local polls have also come up. And I believe one of your recent commentaries for Masterlist, you referred to the dominoes falling, right? And we've we've seen that before where if one person moves up to Washington, then it triggers various uh, down ballots, special elections or appointments here in Massachusetts. And how much credence do you give to some of the theories that are out there about Warren or Baker or Walsh uh, heading to Washington or elsewhere? Well, uh, Charlie Baker, I don't think is going anywhere. That's what he says very explicitly. Uh, and, you know, for all of the speculation, Politico had a piece last week where his name was on a list of Democrats who uh, uh, a, a president-elect Biden, should that occur, might, you know, be interested in talking to about turning his administration into a bipartisan affair, which he's paid a lot of lip service to. And I'm sure he will bring in some Demo uh, some Republicans, rather, if he wins. Charlie Baker isn't going to be one of them. Uh, I, I just don't see that. I don't see that it really does much for Biden. Uh, and uh, where's Baker's expertise? He's a former health care executive, and he's a budgetary expert. Those are his two claims to fame. I, I don't see either a top, you know, HHS job in a Biden administration or Office of Management and Budget going to a Republican. That would, uh, I think, be problematic uh, for Biden among his fellow Democrats. So I'm, I really don't see Baker going anywhere, and I don't think Marty Walsh is going uh, uh, down to Washington either. You don't think I, he I might. Think you don't think he might follow former Mayor Flynn's footsteps to the Holy See or something like that? I mean, you know, a, a, an opportunity like that might be appealing to him. On the other hand, uh, I, I think Walsh, well, I know that Walsh, uh, like his predecessor and uh, Tom, the late Tom Anino and like Ray Flynn before him, are, are people with a deep commitment to the city. I think Walsh feels like his work is not done. So, and I think Baker feels the same way about his work on Beacon Hill. So I, I, am, uh, I do not expect either one of them. Senator Warren is a different story. You know, she, uh, even if the Democrats were to retake majority control of the Senate, thus 
you know, putting her in a senior position and in a position to actually get something done as opposed to the last eight years where it's been Republicans in charge. Uh, even under those circumstances, I, I think she has her eye on uh, uh, something in the cabinet, most likely Treasury Secretary. You know, this would give her an opportunity to wield tremendous power over a whole swath of uh, regulatory enforcement, uh, uh, you know, disciplining and guiding policy, financial policy for the nation's financial system. And these are topics that she's been obsessed with for many, many years. I think to have that kind of cloud. And I, I had an opportunity to interview her just last week, and I asked her about it. And while she said all the right things about, uh, you know, uh, uh, not wanting to get ahead of the curve here, she made it clear that she'd be open to something like that. So I think that's probably the best bet if that happens. Uh, better buckle your seatbelt. We're going to have, first of all, an appointment by Governor Baker, unless the legislature gets all excited and tries to change the law again, as they did uh, back when John Kerry was running for president in 2004, uh, where they tried to make sure they could take the power of appointment away from uh, the Republican governor at that time, Mitt Romney. Uh, but uh, Baker would uh, ostensibly appoint an interim. Uh, that would be an interesting story in and of itself. Would he be interested in appointing himself and giving Karen Polito a running head start for the 2022 election, he might be, um, and giving himself a head start for winning the seat outright in the special election that would follow. But that will attract all sorts of people. Ayanna, uh, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley is at the top of everyone's lips with regard to a Senate seat. I'm sure she'd be interested in that. Joe Kennedy is out there, right? He's made it clear he, he wanted to be a senator. Uh, and what about Maura Healey, the attorney general? Everybody thinks of her as a potential gubernatorial candidate, but uh, uh, she might like to be a U.S. senator, or you know what? She might like to be attorney general. And Joe Biden might just be interested in an articulate, smart, well-regarded uh, gay woman as his attorney general. So, yeah. Get get ready for uh, dominoes flying everywhere, Sam, and get the popcorn ready, too. <laughs> a lot to think about there. Now, as we turn our focus to Beacon Hill and the State House, uh, we're heading into, for all intents and purposes, a lame duck session and one that state lawmakers have said is necessitated by the pandemic, which severely hampered their ability to legislate earlier in the year. Um, but we haven't had uh, formal lawmaking sessions on Beacon Hill after the general election, but before the new legislature is seated uh, since 1994. Uh, of course, in 1995, a uh, uh, rules reform package eliminated lame duck sessions from the uh, repertoire up here. And... Uh, I know that as we ask, as some of our reporters ask folks in the hallways here about heading into a lame duck session, they kind of bristle at the negative connotation of that term. Now, as you know, John, the priorities that are immediately before them are these five conference committees on major issues like police reform, uh, where there's been 
some controversial votes already within the House and Senate. Uh, what's the what's the political reality of taking up an issue like that after the election uh, when some of the folks who are voting on those matters won't even be in office come January? Well, they've got to do something on police reform. After everything that happened this summer, uh, all the blood on the carpet from hashing out both the House and Senate versions of this, uh, all of the public statements that the two leaders, Speaker DeLeo and Senate President Spilka, have made about wanting to get something done and intending to get something done, to have it just fizzle out, I think, would be just to, 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 to put it mildly, bad optics uh, and something that would be, uh, you know, a considerable problem for both the leadership and for rank and file members. Now, obviously, there's significant dissent, uh, particularly within the House, uh, where uh, there were a number of amendments to their version of police reform that passed, but not by veto-proof majorities. So, you know, you have, and, and no one knows, by the way, because he hasn't said what Governor Baker plans to do with police reform. I think that probably depends on what kind of bill they bring to him, but I don't doubt that they will come up with something. But the fact that it's been stalled since July uh, and you're hearing nothing about it, uh, you know, what I've been able to find out is very little from talking to people, but that uh, there's, there's definitely tension over the makeup of that police oversight panel that both versions of the bill create. And with the hard pushback coming from the police unions and their supporters, uh, you know, there's a lot of apprehension in those quarters that that panel not be stacked with, quote unquote, activists, uh, people from uh, the communities of color who have been most vocal, uh, talking about defunding the police and that kind of thing. They're, they're, uh, there's, a, there's a push on to sort of keep that body from becoming too, quote unquote, radical. So, you know, that has to be worked out. And I this lame duck session, I don't think, is going to live up to the uh, the bad reputation that they've had in the past. Uh, you know, lame duck sessions once upon a time were an opportunity for uh, the legislature, fueled by uh, I could care less uh, outgoing legislators, to do things they didn't have the nerve to do otherwise. Most famously, the the, uh, the lame duck session pay hike of, I believe it was 1995 or 94. Okay. I, I don't see that there's, first of all, the pay, pay raises are not an issue now. They have a process set up for that. And the uh, partisan control of both branches is so absolute. They've had the ability to do anything they really wanted to do for some time. Now, I don't, I don't immediately see what sort of mischief they might want to try to jam through in a lame duck. So I think you're going to see action on police reform. The other biggie, I guess, is the bond, uh, the transportation bond. And, you know, that one is sort of frozen in amber because of the train wreck of our economy, thanks to the pandemic. 
Now, everybody on Beacon Hill knows that in two years, voters will eagerly uh, approve the millionaire's tax. And that'll be an infusion of revenue, but that's two, that's more than two years away before they get their hands on any of that dough. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's going to be interesting. And I think there may be some substantive action that gets taken during this lame duck. Uh, but uh, we're about to find out clearly everything's been on hold until the election is over. Well, well, it is a strange year. And when in normal times, it may have been bad optics to take up controversial legislation in a lame duck. Uh, I just heard you saying it would be bad optics to not act on something like police reform before finishing this session. Right. So it is an interesting flip, um, flip of the coin there. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the Supreme Judicial Court. Uh, we just learned the other day uh, Charlie Baker's pick for chief of the SJC, a historic nomination uh, with a hearing scheduled for uh, mid-November. Um, there had been a lot of public pressure on the governor to select someone such as a, a woman of color whom he chose in Justice Kimberly Budd. Uh, does this nomination for chief take the pressure off of him as he makes his other two nominations for associate seats? Or, as Congresswoman Presley says, uh, ought he to continue to further diversify the court, do you think, with his uh, subsequent nominations? Well, you know, there will always be pressure, I think, uh, as there should be. Um, because without pressure, nothing ever changes. Uh, and... Uh, but I think uh, from Presley, from all, all across the spectrum, uh, Baker's getting a lot of love for this nomination. Kimberly Budd is well-respected. Her father, Wayne Budd, uh, was a, sort of an iconic figure in, in local politics for many years, also very well-respected. And, you know, it's interesting now that the court is, I believe, uh, completely made up of Baker appointments, is it not? Or close to it. Up until Justice Lank retires in December. Um, right. Or after that point, yes. At the, after that point. And, you know, isn't it interesting how the Baker court resembles Baker stylistically? There may be, uh, they, they, I don't think they're all, you know, by any means moderate Republicans, but they're all sober, low key, there's no drama. Uh, and they're thoughtful, and they re reflect a diversity uh, of the Commonwealth. And, you know, this, these are uh, some of the more positive things I think you can say about Governor Baker, and they've been reflected uh, in the court. So, yeah, I think uh, he gets his props for this. Uh, and, uh, you know, after Justice Lank moves on, we'll see what he does there. Interesting. You say his nominations to the court are reflective of himself. He was asked during the press conference with Justice Budd about a position that she holds. She has no problem with undocumented immigrants in Massachusetts having driver's licenses, and that's a position counter to one he holds. He reiterated his philosophy that he is not a single-issue endorser of a person he does not make a decision based on one position that they hold. Uh, he used sort of the same philosophy, it seems, in endorsing Kevin O'Connor for U.S. Senate this year. 
O'Connor's got very different opinions about President Trump than Governor Baker has, but Baker endorsed this Republican Senate nominee all the same. Were you at all surprised to see the governor wade into that race and endorse a pro-Trump Republican? You know, I was more surprised when he uh, went out of his way to endorse Senator Susan Collins up in Maine a few weeks back. That's, of course, a highly controversial. Uh, she is very controversial and is, is apparently on the banana peel in that Maine Senate race. Uh, but uh, as a as a prominent pro-choice vote uh, voice within the Republican Party, that one kind of surprised me. But um, Endorsing O'Connor? No. I mean, look, it's interesting. Charlie Baker, over the years, by me and many others, has been given ample opportunity to essentially leave the Republican Party, to say, yeah, this is not my Republican Party. I don't like what it's become. Maybe I'll keep the designation. I don't, I don't want to become an independent, but uh, I'm really not part of that. And he he always steers clear of that. And, you know, I, I, I can only speculate about the reasons for it. I think he's reluctant to get chased out of the party by the Trump universe. There's, as you know, zero love lost between Charlie Baker and Trump-loving Republicans here in Massachusetts. He's at odds, hammer and tongs, with his own state party apparatus and has created his own shadow party uh, to parallel that. So uh, I just think that, uh, you know, Baker always kind of plays the long game. He sees that if Donald Trump is routed and the Republicans lose the Senate, there could be, there certainly should be, a significant backlash against the Trumpism in the Republican Party. And it's entirely possible that it could revert to its previous state, uh, a party with a, a mix of moderates and conservatives, more of a Mitt Romney, Charlie Baker kind of party, perhaps with Romney as its standard bearer at on the national level and Baker back here. And he may be saying, look, why do I want to let myself get run out of the party when I can continue to endorse people I find acceptable, like Kevin O'Connor? I can continue to oppose Trump and make it clear I, I detest him uh, and uh, wait them out. And if the whole Trump thing blows over, uh, then maybe the, after all, there's an actual future for him in a Republican Party that has reverted to form. Time will tell, as we pundits like to say, Sam, when we don't really know. <laughs> so with his popularity still really at its height, do you think he still needs the party, regardless of whether he still wants the designation? Does he need the party, or could he forget about the mass GOP and... Uh, and embrace the reality that the majority of Massachusetts is unenrolled and and just embrace that moderate middle? I mean, I think for all intents and purposes, he has. But, you know, he's he's got to win the party nomination every four years to get ballot access. I mean, I suppose he could run as an independent, but but that would be fatal, right? If you had a Republican nominee and then Charlie Baker running as an independent, re-election is out of the question. The math just doesn't work. 
So uh, for that reason, he needs to hang in there. And I think, you know, he wants to. Uh, Again, I I just uh, don't think he's the kind of personality who would take to the notion of being elbowed aside by a bunch of people who he does not respect. So while... Uh, you know, fighting for the soul of the party is not something that's way up there on his agenda. I, I don't think he wants to just step aside and and let it be overrun by the Trumpkins either. So I think that's probably closer to what's going on. Sure. Looking past next week, uh, we've alluded to 2022 and the yeah. next gubernatorial election. Um, Attorney General Healy has been taking some positions counter to the governor, including recently over his opposition to ranked choice voting, uh, something he announced just this week after around a third of the state had already cast its ballots. Um, What do you think of Healy's positioning here? And do do you think that based on what you've heard and your impressions of the governor, do you think that he wants a third term? Boy, you know, that's, that's really the money question these days, isn't it, Sam? Uh, you know, I, he won't say, and uh, when I talk to people close to him, they insist they don't know. Uh, my guess would be, seeing as how he's sitting there watching much of his six years of work as governor just flushed down the toilet by the pandemic, and the economic collapse. I, I, if I read him right, I see him as someone who, you know, wants to be able when he does walk away to say, "Look at what I did." You know, and these are lasting accomplishments. Uh, and so I think he may be starting to feel he's going to need a third term. Also, one other side effect of the pandemic that I I don't think anyone expected, is that in a way it sets up circumstances that could augur very well for a Baker re-election in in the sense that, look, the next two years on Beacon Hill are going to be devoted to resurrecting the economy, right? I mean, that's uh, the, the worst of the budget cuts have been staved off for now, but Uh, Unless we have an unexpectedly rapid return to form here, higher ed gets back on its feet, tourism and all the industries we rely on so heavily, uh, you know, we're going to be in big trouble over the next couple of years. Uh, And, uh, you know, Charlie Baker's whole case, the key to his appeal is He's a fix-it guy. He's a guy who's going to go in there and make it run right and get it up and running. He's the he's sort of the uh, the um, uh, the non-ethnic Tom Menino, right? Instead of an urban mechanic, he's a statewide auto body mechanic who uh, you know can step up and fix this thing. Uh, by the same token, if you're more Healy. All of a sudden, first of all, being governor in 2022 isn't quite as appealing a prospect as it was before last March. Uh, You're going to have to be continuing to dig out from under this economic apocalypse. 
and as I mentioned, you know, when you look at the key industries here that have been crippled by the pandemic, uh, they may very well lag behind other industries in coming back as the economy recovers. Uh, is foreign, ter foreign tourism took years to return to the Boston area after 9-11. Uh, the higher ed business model has been destroyed uh, by this. So uh, all of a sudden, being governor in 2023 doesn't look like quite the fun joyride that it might have looked like. And all along, Maura Healy, uh, who is super smart and has super smart political people around her, have had to contend with and reckon with the reality that uh, women, with only a few recent ex exceptions, uh, uh, usually do very poorly in statewide races. Uh, and in particular, attorneys general do very poorly when they try to move up. I mean, the, the litany of our recent political history is littered with the corpses of attorneys general who tried to run for governor or for senator. Uh, there's just something about it uh, that people don't seem to like. So that's certainly got to be factoring into her thinking. And I, that's why I said before, I think if, if uh, a president-elect Biden came up with a good spot for Maura Healy, uh, she might find that a little bit more intriguing. Right. Depending on how things go on November 3rd, her options could really open up. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, thanks very much, John, for... Uh for joining us this week on the Statehouse Takeout and offering your take on the years to come. It's my pleasure, Sam. Thanks for having me. And I want to remind all of your listeners of the pundit's credo. What's that? If I'm right on anything I've said, I want everyone to note it and pay homage. If I'm wrong, please forget I said anything. I will deny it anyway, even though I know you have the tape. We'll forget it immediately. You can rest assured. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Take care, John. Thanks very much. Sure thing. Bye-bye. Statehouse Takeout is a production of the Statehouse News Service. And for a daily fix of Statehouse headlines, visit masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.